everybody, this is David Chuddick here, financial advisor with Parallel Financial. If you have been following the markets, the stock markets, uh, you may have seen some ups and downs recently. If you'd like a link to uh, a video that our firm put out about how we manage investment risk, email me at david at parallelfinancial.com. I can shoot that over to you, and it just really explains some of the measures that we have in place, and you can compare that with what you are doing to manage your investment risk. Hope that you enjoy this episode with attorney Rick McDuff. And we're going to be talking about some of the things that you should be doing for your own legal health. This is the Weekly Wealth Podcast with certified financial planner, David Chuddick, where we discuss the wealth building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. So hello, everybody. My name is David Chuddick, and I am a financial advisor with Parallel Financial. And this week, we are speaking with attorney Rick McDuff, and uh, we're going to speak about some issues that can help you with your legal health. So let's get this party rolling. So hey, Rick, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you, David? I am doing well. Um, I wanted to to put together a, a series of seminars that can just help people to become healthy in their entire lives, uh, not necessarily the financial part that I that I help people with. So uh, I'm I'm really thankful for your time and for your expertise. And uh, and shoot, let's get this party started. Uh, and since you're the attorney, how about you give us our uh, our disclaimer about legal advice and all that good stuff, so we don't get in trouble with the other attorneys. Well, I can't speak as fast as the announcers do on TV with the small print at the, in the footnote, but uh, I, I'm going to tell you, everybody, I'm licensed, practiced in, in South Carolina and the state of Florida, and I've actually asked the state of uh, Florida to put my uh, license into retired status, so I will only be licensed in South Carolina probably after four weeks from now, but in any event, if you are uh, I'm, I'm giving general information out. If you have specific information or questions that need to be answered, you need to be uh, you need to consult with your own attorney, uh, licensed in the in the place where you practice. Perfect, got it. All right, well, let's get this started. So, you and I, we kind of talked about some 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 times in our lives and situations where we we potentially can run into some legal problems and and might need to speak to you or another attorney. And um, so let's just kind of run down our list here. Um, When you're married and have a kid, like why is it important uh, to to, to speak with an attorney? What are some of the the legal issues that come across with marriage and having children? Well, the the big issues that I encounter are number one, um, what happens if one of the spouses dies and there's no and there's no estate plan. There's no will. There's no uh, document telling uh, the probate court how things are going to be divided up. And I'll give you an example. I have one now. A husband went on a business trip. Three very young children. Uh, wife at home. He went to stay in a hotel overnight for the business trip. Didn't wake up in the morning. And now uh, house was in there titled in such a way there was no will that wife now owns the marital residence with the three young children, and that has to be placed into guardianship until they're 18 years of age. And now the children own one half, she owns one half, and she's handcuffed from being able to do anything with the house. That, that's just one example of, of things that can go awry. 
you know, how easy like, would it, how easy would it have been for you to to help prevent that had you been working with them you know prior to the prior to the passing? Well, there were a couple things I would have recommended to them. Is number one, we could do a simple fix to the title to your home to put it in and write a survivorship so that if the husband did die in an untimely fashion, the house, the whole title of the house would have passed to the wife without any probate being necessary and no ownership interest by the minor children. The other thing would be to have a just a simple will in place, uh, just naming your spouse as the person who takes uh, everything in the event you predecease them. Uh, the other thing is you want to make sure if something were to happen, both the mother and the father, and you had minor children, you need to make uh, some provision to have a guardian named to care for those children. Otherwise, the probate court's going to name a guardian to care for them, and it may not be the person or persons you want to have do that. So those, those are all issues where, you know, we don't know what we don't know, right? I mean, you, you think that if you own a house and your, and your spouse passes away, you now own the house um, alone. But, but in reality, unless certain legal, uh, legal tasks are taken, you now are part owner with minor children, which is a tremendous, tremendous issue that uh, creates probably a lot more costs, uh, legal and otherwise, uh, later on. So since 2020, I mean, lots of people have ended up incapacitated with COVID and other reasons. Like, what happens if someone can't make decisions for themselves and they're incapacitated? What that, That's certainly an issue that we all need to plan for, isn't it? It is. It, it, you know, what, we, what we recommend in our part of our practice is that we have a, there are three essential documents we think people need to have is just doing part of their protective estate plan. One of them controls what happens when you pass away. The other two deal with how to, how to or deal with issues that may arise during, during your lifetime. And those are powers of attorney, specifically here in South Carolina, we have what's called a durable power of attorney that allows somebody that you name to help administer and tend to your business affairs, your personal financial affairs, and also be able to communicate with your doctors and, and come up with a plan of care for you uh, if you're incapacitated. It doesn't take your power away, it just allows them to assist you in being able to handle those things. Otherwise, we'd have to go to the court and have a guardian and conservator appointed for you at tremendous cost. Uh, it's much more difficult now here at least and they probably run three to five thousand dollars to get a guardianship and a conservatorship set up, whereas for two hundred and fifty dollars you get a power of attorney that can take care of about ninety nine percent of the issues that would be encountered. The other thing, because it you know we've had seen um, some morbidity uh, with the with COVID, is that sometimes people become unresponsive for large long periods of time and cannot communicate with their doctors. So where you have a healthcare surrogate that can make decisions uh, based upon what authority you give them in terms of your uh, in terms of your healthcare when you can't communicate your wishes or your desires to your doctor. So so I'm married. If I did not have those documents in place, and if I ended up, for lack of a better term, in a coma or on a ventilator in, in, with COVID, like what would happen if if I don't have that uh, healthcare power of attorney in place? Well, just because you're married doesn't mean your spouse is is has the authority to do those things, to be able to tend to those matters. Uh, so it, in most, a lot of healthcare providers would require a guardian and conservator be appointed by the probate court to authorize your wife to be able to carry out those duties. Whereas uh, with two simple documents that we can create, 
those those powers be, would be conferred without need of intervention of the probate court. Okay. And that's, you know, like you said, that's a couple hundred bucks of, of just pre-planning, right? I mean, you know, w- once or twice in your life. So it's, it's not a tremendous, you know, I, I think a lot of people think estate planning has to be this tremendously difficult process, but, but at the very basics, it's a pretty simple, simple and, and very uncostly process, isn't it? Yeah. Let, let me tell you that there are expensive estate plans you can, you can create, uh, especially when it, it gets involved with trust and deeding certain assets to trust, uh, inter vivos or revocable trust, which is a, a you know more complicated or complex form of estate plan. But if you're talking about doing simple wills, husband and wife wills, and powers of attorney with the recording fees that we have with to record the powers of attorney, you're probably talking in the neighborhood of uh, $1,300 to $1,500, depending if part of our review requires us to retitle your property and put it in names Joint names with right of survivorship. Sure, so, sure. So, so it's not free, but it's certainly not not a deal breaker. So, anybody who doesn't have those wills and powers of attorneys done, contact Rick. Contact a, a licensed attorney in your state, um, and and make sure to get this done because you will you'll you'll never regret planning. Now, you mentioned trusts. Just very, I know trusts are a very complicated subject, but very generally, like why do people put their homes and and some of their properties in trusts? Well, there, there are several reasons people will put their, their property and in, in, in residence in, into a trust. Um, more often than not, I think the primary reason would be for people is they don't want to, they want to try to avoid probate if possible. So a trust is a, is a vehicle, a legal vehicle that allows you to bypass the probate process by and large. If you properly utilize and fund that trust during your lifetime, that will distribute the assets according to the trust document, uh, and, and the trustee would be charged with doing that after your after your passing. Uh, another reason people do it, and there are a variety of them, is, is for estate tax planning. Right now, we have a very high estate tax threshold. I expect that will come down. It'll tumble down. Congress is going to change that. So it's a way to help manage estate taxes. You can. You can do certain things with the trust to allocate assets between spouses to help minimize estate tax liabilities. And the other reason is some people put trust and in, money into trust or property into trust because they've got even adult children who might inherit money that they are not responsible with money. So they want them to be able to get benefit from the trust to help them, but not get their hands on the principal of the trust where they could, uh, if they're profligate spenders or spendthrifts or have a substance issue, but they have some means of, of support. Then um, another reason that people do them is if, if they've got children from a first marriage and they want the wife, the second wife or second husband to have uh, income and be provided for if something were to happen to the other spouse, but they don't want that second spouse's children to inherit their assets, then they'll have a benefit to the, to the second spouse during lifetime where the assets will then pass pursuant to the trust to the children of the first marriage or, or whatever relationship there was. So okay. it, many reasons, but I just outlined several of them. Sure. It's given you, given you some options. Now you did mention a word that I wanted you to talk about for just a moment in probate. Why would I want to, first of all, what is probate? And second of all, why might I want to avoid probate? Well, probate and some people that think probate is a, is a four letter word. It, it, it depends. Um, 
probate is a process by which that assets, the property of somebody who has passed away or died, are transferred to the people that are either going to inherit through what we call intestacy. That's when somebody dies with, without a will, or they're going to inherit through somebody's will. Because that the, the property does not automatically pass on that person's death. There has to be some process to go through the court system to then have an orderly transfer from the person who died to the person whose people are going to inherit the property. And in the meantime, uh, it, uh, account for and settle up any debts of the estate uh, or the person who died that may exist at the time of their death as part of the probate process. You cannot, uh, absent a trust, if somebody dies with real estate or property, a house, title to that house cannot pass to whoever's going to inherit outside the probate process. You know, talking about some other financial instruments, let's talk life insurance, let's talk about IRAs. And I know this is something that, uh, you know, I've seen quite frequently uh, where part of the financial planning process is we like to to review life insurance beneficiaries. So let's say a client of mine purchased a life insurance policy 20 years ago, um, and they put spouse number one as a beneficiary because that was the intention at the time. And now we're at 20 years later, and they really haven't thought about changing their beneficiary. So talk to me a little bit about the types of financial instruments that have beneficiaries that don't necessarily go through probate, but how important is it to make sure that the beneficiary is the right person or the right entity? Well, that's a good question, David. Um, let's talk about generally the types of instruments we see where there are beneficiaries. You mentioned life insurance products, life insurance policies are gonna have where you can designate a beneficiary. IRAs, you will designate beneficiaries, either a primary or a contingent or a backup beneficiary or beneficiaries annuities, uh, certificates of deposits, bank accounts, those types of things. You can all name beneficiaries on those types of accounts or assets. Uh, so there's some sort of orderly transition. Now, the default is if you don't name a beneficiary, your estate becomes the beneficiary. And so anything, if it's any in, in, person who would inherit from your estate, would that money would first have to go through the probate process uh, before it gets to the intended person or persons. If you name a beneficiary on your accounts, that will pass outside of probate. So it's a contractual document that governs. Those assets will pass automatically. There'll be a form to fill out, a, a proof of death by death certificate, proof of identity of the person making the claim, and those monies will automatically be distributed to the person named as the beneficiary uh, without having to go through probate. Let's say, let's say, uh, and this is not the case for me, but but let's say um, I'm on my first and only marriage. But let's say I was on marriage number three, and I took out a policy. I don't know, 20 years ago, and and, and spouse number one was named as the beneficiary, and then I just never changed it. And um, 20 years later, I pass away, and spouse number one is still listed as a primary beneficiary. What might happen in that case? Spouse number one gets the money. I mean, that, that's a horrible, horrible mistake. And that's a horrible, horrible, um, th that's not what anybody wanted. So that's one of those financial planning issues that just really, really needs to be looked at for, for sure. What about if I left a life insurance or an IRA to my minor child? So if I put my child's name on my million dollar life insurance, what would happen at that point if, if God forbid something happens to me? 
In the state of South Carolina, if you put the, a minor child on any kind of uh, instrument, document, account, uh, and they're under the age 18, there's going to have to be a conservator appointed for them to manage that money until they turn to 18 years of age. You know, and you raise an important issue is that as part of a meeting with people, when we look at their estate plans, when we review what they have in existence or help them create estate plans, we always have a do it holistically. And we talk to them about what, what things they have, instruments that have beneficiaries attached to them and whether or not they've named beneficiaries uh, first and foremost. Number two, if they have, are those the beneficiaries that they presently intend or desire to have take those take those monies when they pass away. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, if wife number one's on there, you're on wife number three, wife number one inherits. And if you got a child, that money's got to be gone, go into some states, just do it through guardianship. And here in South Carolina, it's done through a guardianship and conservatorship. That money would be held by them. The downside of that is some people don't want their 18 year olds to get their hands on money. And without some sort of uh, trust document, and you have a minor child, then that money's going to be in the hands of an 18-year-old. There's nothing that can be done to prevent it. And if it's a million-dollar policy, you've got an 18-year-old with a million dollars free and clear. That's yeah. That's uh, that, that's that's going to be million-dollar uh, check to an 18-year-old. Uh, there's nothing good that can come from that. And again, that's where coming working with a financial advisor, I can kind of provide some guidance. And of course, uh, you, the attorney, would help draw trust documents and look at what really needs to happen. But I'm a big believer that most of us don't know what we don't know, which is why I'm trying to have some seminars and, and webinars of experts so that we can, you know, learn how to make the things that we want to happen actually happen. So before we move on to the business owner kind of portion of this, let's talk just a second about custody and what might happen to our minor children if we pass away. Um, and maybe some things that we would think about, um, you know, in, in the planning process with uh, with guardians, if if God forbid one or both parents were, were to pass away. Well, we, and that's another conversation we have with people who have minor children is that we want, you know, first of all, we say you need a will because you need to make sure if something happens to you, your spouse is protected and you don't have minor children that are going to own part of what you intended to go to your spouse. Number two, if you were to both die in some sort of common catastrophe, or I've seen this before, I've had this where young spouses will die within a few weeks of each other, or within a month of each other, because of just uh, some unforeseen happenstance, is that you want to designate in your will who you want to be able to be the guardian of your children. Otherwise, that's going to be left solely up to a probate judge to decide who that person or persons are going to be. So it gives you the control over naming the person or persons you want to raise your children versus the court doing it uh, and maybe contrary to what you would ever want to have done. Well, and I think the big thing there is nobody wants to think about, you know, those those things, but you have to have these conversations with your spouse, with your other family members, with the potential guardian and with your attorney, because it only becomes that much bigger of an issue if it's not dealt with prior. Difficult things to think about, but they need to be dealt with for sure. I just want to think about our own mortality. And I tell mm -hmm. people I'm not trying to be morbid, but, you know, there's a there's a 10 in 10 chance you're going to die. It's yep. just a matter of you know, when that occurs. No, there, there's no question there. 
And all of these documents and planning, I mean, a lot of people will kind of make the joke, well, I'll still be dead. It won't matter. Well, that's true. However, your loved ones around you, it doesn't bring you back, but it certainly makes their life easier when, when they're avoiding the problems that working, you know, with you or another attorney like yourself would have helped, uh, helped to prevent. So let's move on a little bit to kind of the small business owners of, of the world. Lots of people, um, I mean, you're a small business owner or, or a partner, I'm a small business owner. What are some of the kind of the, the main issues maybe with business entities? Everybody wants to have an LLC or a corporation. So can you spend, you know, literally 20 seconds on just the, 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 the main types of small business entities? Sure. Uh, there are two main types are that we deal with most often are, are going to be the small corporation or limited liability company. They're rough equivalents. And the, the, the issue is, is how they're going to be, how we have that discussion about how they're going to be taxed. How do you want them to be taxed um, is the discussion. But what it does is it insulates you from individual liability. It's a way of asset protect to set up a company through which you do business. As long as you follow some basic guidelines and do some certain things that, that uh, you, know, you don't use the corporate money for your personal piggy bank, you're going to be shielded from individual liability in some way of asset protection. But more often than not, we're, we're creating limited liability companies and then working with tax advisors to determine whether or not it's appropriate for that LLC to be taxed as a, a sole proprietorship, a partnership, or they want to do an S-corporation election for tax purposes. Yeah. So again, not the funnest stuff to deal with, but we all, you know, let's face it, who wants to pay more taxes than they're legally required? And also who wants to be, um, who wants to be responsible for, for, for liability events? A lot of times recently, especially, you know, Coney County and other parts of, of the state, people lose their jobs. So they say, you know what, I'm going to go cut grass, cut my neighbor's grass, or I'm going to start my own handyman business. And, and they never set up an LLC. They never set up a, a corporation. So how are they operating? And talk to me a little bit about why that may not be a good idea. Well, I'll give you an example right now. I have a, have a home builder that I represent, and he, uh, he had a claim filed against him over some construction work, and he got sued personally and individually uh, because he was acting as a sole proprietorship. Now, I, you know, my opinion of being biased, it was, not a, it was not a bona fide claim against him but it still exposed him to individual liability. For you know, a, a few dollars, you can set up an entity because if you're engaged in business, you're dealing with, with the public. Most, I'd say 99% of the people who have small businesses deal with the public. You drive a vehicle, you have, a, you have premises where people come to, there are all kinds of ways people can get hurt, injured, and bring a lawsuit against you. If it's, if it's acting in a, company capacity, by and large, you're going to be individually shielded from liability uh, and, and protect your personal assets. And so any judgment creditor would be limited to the value of the assets in the business. Sole proprietorship is a very dangerous way to do business without some sort of corporate shield around you. Okay. Okay. So for all the sole proprietors out there that just kind of never got around is it a relatively simple process to work with you or do they need you or, you know, forming an LLC or a corporation? How complicated of a process is that? It's not a complicated process. And I, I have people come to me and 
I'll tell you this, I, I, if you can do in South Carolina, you can do it online. As long as I have them sign a consent form that I can upload to the Secretary of State, the filing fee is $146 with the South Carolina Secretary of State. And I can get an LLC created in about two hours. You know, it takes about from the time I hit the send button and pay the fee $146 till the time they review it and approve it. I've got about a two hour lag, I, so up and going. I tell people, you know, you can do this online yourself if you want to, if you don't want to pay me. But if you want me to do a belt and suspenders approach where we create an operating agreement, especially if you're going to have more than one owner of the company, you need to have a, a governing document between you and decide what happens if one of you dies, what happens if one of you wants to leave the business, what happens if you want to bring in another owner into the business, how the mechanics of that work. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, I like you, I want to be business partners with you, but I don't want to be business partners with your spouse. So mm -hmm. we put together an operating agreement to deal with those issues. And, you know, I'd say 80% of the people say, look, I want you to handle it all. You do it. Some people will say, no, I'll just get it up and going. I'm going to be the only owner. You know, it's up to the client, but it's a simple process to create one. The more difficult process is to make sure you've got the right documents in place, especially if you have more than one owner. And as the small business owners begin to hire team members, let's talk a little bit about some of the some of the legal ramifications and maybe questions we should be asking with regard to employment law, with regard to just everything that involves hiring and 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 even potentially firing uh, team members. Well, there there are a lot of different things, a lot of tripwires, as I say, that can come into play for small businesses, and it doesn't take you much to put you in the realm of being subject to a whole bevy of state and federal laws. And so if you're a small business and you've got 15, 15 or more employees in your business, you're now subject to all the federal anti-discrimination laws, which means you need to have an employee handbook, you need to do training to make sure that if somebody feels like they're being mistreated in the workplace, that there's a way and avenue for them to, to be able to, to bring that complaint forward, that there's no, they're not, there's no risk of retaliation. Um, you, know, you understand what the wage and hour laws say. A lot of people say, you know, this is a, a big tripwire for people, is that they say, well, I'm going to pay them a salary. And they're working people more than 40 hours a week. And so the, the wage and hour laws are very specific as to who can be treated as a salaried employee and who has to be treated as an hourly employee. And you get a disgruntled employee who leaves your employment and says they were paying me a salary and working me 60 hours a week. I should have been treated as an hourly employee. Guess what? The federal government's gonna come after you and say, the Department of Labor's gonna say, you owe that person uh, one and a half times their normal hourly wage for every hour that they worked over 40 hours a week in any work week. And plus, we're going to double that uh, as a penalty, and you're going to pay their attorney's fees as well. So that's that's a bad day when that happens, isn't it? And that that the wage and hour laws apply to anybody who meets the threshold. They either have five hundred thousand dollars or more in revenue, or they're engaged in interstate commerce, which is barely you know if you have customers or clients out of state, you're engaged in interstate commerce, regardless of your of your gross revenue threshold, and you're subject to wage and hour laws. You have 15 or more employees, you're subject to all the federal anti-discrimination law. That is that's that's scary stuff. 
and is it is it normally advisable for for someone to kind of consult you or someone like you if if maybe parting ways with a team member is 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 something that is eminent? Well, you know, if if it's a if it's a somebody comes in and says, I'm just gonna, I'm you know, I've taken another job, unless there's some inkling that they're leaving for some reason, they're disgruntled. You know, that can be handled internally. If it's a it, you know, oftentimes we'll hire people, we'll think they're going to turn out great, but they turn out to be problem employees. They, uh, I've seen it in my career. I've seen it with clients time and time again. And so if you, if you think it's going to be a problem termination, parting of the ways, I, I would recommend having a, have a consultation with a lawyer just to make sure that you're going to fire them, make sure that everything is documented that supports a termination. Because, you know, the presumption of the law is if you didn't document it, it didn't exist. And I know a lot of employers say, well, I didn't want to put something bad in their personnel file. Well, that's the no good deed goes unpunished is because then the you know, person says I've been discriminated against because I'm a zebra or I'm an elephant or I'm a giraffe. And all of a sudden they've got somebody, a lawyer saying, well, you never warned them. You never gave them an opportunity to correct their behavior. You didn't, you know, you, you, you fired them for some improper purpose and you say you, you counseled them, but there's no evidence of it. So prove you did it. That's hard. And, you know, life, life is scary and, and business is scary. There's a lot of areas where we are at risk. And I think that's a big reason why why you exist and and why the attorneys exist. And I was I was even going to look up some some cheesy attorney jokes, but but you're a good guy, so I wouldn't uh, wouldn't subject you to any of the attorney jokes. But but in all seriousness, your attorney's job is to protect you and tell you where where you um, where you where you are at risk. So tell me just a little bit about your practice and kind of the expertise that you and your partners have um, in the state of South Carolina. Sure. Uh, I've been practicing 35 years. Um, I've, um, I've been with, I've had a majority of my career with a very large firm for the last five years, uh, have been in a three lawyer law firm in the town in which I live. And, and I went from being highly specialized, although I did a number of things, did a lot of merger and acquisition work, did a lot of healthcare law and did employment law work with a large firm. It's now a, a thousand lawyer law firm. Uh, now in a small town, it, I still have the same issues come up with with business owner clients. I still have healthcare provider clients, but we deal with more of a a you know a small business rather than larger business clientele. We also deal with a lot of individuals and in real estate transactions, estate planning. We help people buy and sell small businesses, help them form small businesses, and just kind of act as as general advisors to people. Uh, you know, we this. You, the, Issues are the same. The scale may be a bit, little bit different, but the issues have been the same consistently throughout 35 years. We're just more of a, a general practice uh, firm in a smaller town. Yeah, no, and that's, you know, we're, we're definitely not downtown Atlanta, downtown New York City. So uh, having having the resources of someone like yourself that has a, a very just strong general knowledge of a lot of different areas of law certainly is a is a huge asset so so for anybody in south carolina if, if you're interested go to mjmlawsc.com that stands for uh, merrill jan and mcduff so mjmlawsc.com and uh and rick's office phone number is 
466. So I encourage everybody to, to let's think about the things that we need to think about. Let's get the wills done. Let's, let's discuss if we need trust uh, put in place. Let's make sure that our beneficiaries are correct. Let's make sure that our business entity is what it needs to be. If you've been sitting on that sole proprietorship for, for, for years, just not knowing how to get started forming an LLC or corporation, you know, ask, get some help from the professionals and let's just get this done so that we could, um, we could eliminate the liabilities and even potentially extra tax burden that, um, that we may have. So Rick, with, with that being said, do you have any uh, parting words of wisdom? Well, I, I just think it's, it, I would recommend if you have something, unless if, if it's a, you have uncertainty about it, it's a new venture, it's a new transaction, any kind of contract, I, I just out of precaution, if you have a contract that you're going to contemplate having signed, you're going to be a party to it, have a lawyer review it. I know it sounds like it's self-perpetuating. But I've seen so many times where people have signed agreements they put together basically on a bar napkin and, and things have gone sideways and they don't understand why they're not, they're not being afforded certain legal protections that they thought they were going to be afforded based upon a handshake deal. And that's whether it's a business deal, it's a real estate transaction, whatever it may be, just have a lawyer look at it. And I'm... Everybody get a will, have a will done and powers of attorney at a bare minimum. It's simple protection. It protects your loved ones. It takes the burden off of them. It makes things easy. And it's, I know we don't want to think about more our mortality, but get it done, put it in a safe deposit box. Or you're safe at home and forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the will doesn't bring the loved one back, but it certainly makes the uh, everybody else's life just easier and less painful on what, um, you know, more than likely is some of the worst days of their in, entire life. So that's, that is great advice for sure. And and I just appreciate that you um, would, would, would drive that one home because you can't, uh, you know, you just can't, uh, can't stress that one enough. So with that being said, um, hey, don't forget to everybody check out my website, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. Um, we're also, we'll post Rick McDuff's uh, contact information. So with that being said, we wish everybody a blessed week.